CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for another edition of Political Rewind, and as always, I'm awfully happy to have all of you out there listening to the show with us uh, today. Uh, Let's get right to introducing the panel, because as usual, we have a lot to talk about. It's Thursdays, which means my partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is the boss himself, Kevin Riley, editor of the AJC. Kevin, thanks for being here. It's great to be here, Bill. Looking forward to our discussion. And as always, uh, I enjoy that uh, important sounding introduction. The boss. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. you are the boss. Um, we're also joined today by Fred Smith, uh, who, of course, is a professor of constitutional law at Emory University. Fred, thank you for being back with us today. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Susan Catron is here. Susan is the managing editor of The Current Uh, which is a digital news publication that covers the coast of Georgia based out of Savannah, but, of course, also covers stories across the state. You can read The Current by going to thecurrentga.org. And, Susan, the org is important because you are one of a growing number of nonprofit uh, news organizations uh, growing up around the country. We are, and uh, it's a fun thing because— it's uh, we're nonpartisan and nonprofit, and we hope that readers will support the work that they need. We we believe information should be free, so we don't charge for information. And information is power, as you know. D- don't and, don't say that when Kevin Riley is on the show, Susan. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> There's a thousand business models out there, and we're hoping that they all work well for journalism. <laughs> I, 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 I know. And let me just say, uh, we uh, I as well are, as a am a fan of the current and the work they're doing, and and in the end. Uh, the more journalism we have in Georgia, the better for absolutely, our state. Absolutely. Chris Grant is here. He's a professor of political science at Mercer University and I believe co-chair of the Department of Political Science at Mercer. Right, Chris? I, I am back to being full chair this semester, oh. but I will be co-chair in the spring, I hope. Oh, yeah. yeah, you always want to share that <laughs> workload. All right. Thank you, Chris, for being here. All right, let's get right to it. Uh, Kevin Riley, during his campaign for president, Joe Biden uh, made one of his big campaign promises, a pledge that he would do his best to eliminate or certainly reduce student loan debt. This has been hanging over the administration for literally ever since he uh, was sworn in for a very long time. Uh, It was unclear exactly how Biden was going to move forward, although he said repeatedly, yes, we've got to do something about it. And yesterday he finally announced the plan. Um, I'll just very briefly uh, mention some details. Uh, First of all, we should say there are 45 million people who are covered, uh, who have federal student loan debt. And this only applies to people with federal loans. Uh, That's $1.6 trillion of debt. 
And the Biden plan says that if you make $125,000, up to $125,000, they're going to forgive $10,000 of that debt. If you are a Pell Grant recipient, they're going to forgive $20,000 of that debt. And we should say 60% of the people um, who are covered by this do have Pell Grants. And of those, a majority are in families that are earning $30,000 or less. This is a big deal, celebrated by many, but criticized by some, including some Democrats. Yeah. Somehow the president has uh, honored a campaign promise and may appear to have made almost no one completely happy because some people wanted more forgiveness. Others think it's appalling to do any forgiveness at all. And I have to credit the Republicans. They are on message. They are on message about everything, which is this is going to make inflation worse, which is their favorite thing to talk about. We're to the point where if the Democrats or the White House proposed the the perfect solution to world peace, I think the Republicans would say, yeah, that's great, but I bet it will raise inflation. Um, Chris, I want to find out from you um, how you can talk to us about this in terms of, say, what's happening on the Mercer campus. And, you know, you, you may not have data, but I assume there are any number of students at Mercer who are going to be covered by this? Well, I'll start out by saying I'm going to be covered by this. Congratulations. I've been paying on student loans for 26 years, and I'm going to get some debt relief. Um, because when I first got out of graduate school, it was impossible for me to um, make my budget work with student loan debt. And I took the long, long-term plan, the 25-year plan, and we've had a couple of interruptions now. So, I think for some of us, it's it's a welcome relief. And for a lot of our students at Mercer University, you know, a third of our students at Mercer University are Pell Grant eligible. Uh, a lot of people don't know that about Mercer's student body population, that most, a third of our students are Pell Grant eligible. And um, uh, over half of our entering class came from um, non-white backgrounds. So our student body is greatly affected by student loans. The university has tried very hard to keep tuition down. We went many years with no tuition increases. I can tell you that our pay for part-time faculty and overloads for full-time faculty has not changed in the 16 years I've been here. And we have really tightened our budgets because we understand the dilemmas that our students have. And it is not uncommon for a student graduating from Mercer to come out with an undergraduate education with $20,000, $25,000 in debt. And we don't like that. We, we really don't like that. I can tell you the institution has made a commitment to trying to reduce that number. Um, and, and I think many institutions have. And so as part of the idea that higher education, listening to the radio this morning, to the higher education cobble, um, is, is sometimes a, a false narrative. Because higher education really has looked at this and tried to respond in many ways. At least we have. I can tell you that personal experience. <clears throat> So our students do benefit from this, okay. and I benefit from it. Um, Susan, let me play a soundbite from uh, Senator Warnock. Uh, Raphael Warnock has been a big proponent of this. He's talked about it over and over again. He was invited to the White House, in fact, the other day, where the president personally briefed him on the plan that he was going to announce. Um, yesterday, um, our uh, uh, Savannah Bureau Chief, Ben Payne, caught up with Raphael Warnock and talked about this, and here's just a little of what Warnock had to say. I'm the beneficiary of Pell Grants, low-interest student loans, and since the days that I graduated from college, it's become harder uh, for young people to do that. Uh, too many of our young people have a mortgage before they have a mortgage. 
That's Raphael Warnock. Um, And, of course, Republicans, as this campaign unfolds between uh, uh, Warnock and Walker, are going to criticize Warnock uh, for supporting a plan that they believe will add to inflation. But weigh in on this, Susan, and then Fred. You know, I've heard in the last 24 hours, I've heard, you know, shouts of glee. And I've heard a couple parents who put their kids through school and worked hard and, and, and did all the things that they could do. And they're upset. They're angry. They say, who, come, who helps us? You know, we, we did all this and our kids were working and all that. And then I've heard, you know, from a student, a former student of mine who, you know, graduated with last year with 20000 in loans. And she used to spend the last of her semester couch surfing because she didn't have enough money for rent. So she, you know, she went on to work and she's working, but she says it's going to be years till she gets out. And this, this means, she said, maybe I can buy a house by the time I'm 50. So, you know, she's she's a pretty good illustration. I mean, I, uh, the average loan debt in Georgia, I think, is like $41,000. Mm. And there's, um, I read, and last night I was reading, state residents overall have $68 billion in student loan debt. Good grief. It's just part of that comes back into the economy. It's got to be something. But what it means to these individuals is truly amazing. So, I, you know, I got mixed emotions about it, but... People are working hard to stay in school. They've got two. I had one student that had two jobs, and that's the only way she could come to school because she had grants, but she needed to live and eat. So there, there's differing opinions, but it's real. Um, I should point out that mm-hmm. when I really dug into the details mm-hmm. of this plan, parents yeah. who have participated in a federal loan program will also be covered. They will be able to take advantage. So so some of those parents that are concerned about this uh, mm-hmm. potentially are going to get some help. Uh, Fred, everybody knows that Emory University has been one of the really expensive colleges in the country, but Emory has had a program of its own uh, because of their awareness uh, of how expensive college is to uh, try to help students with more affordable uh, education there. But I assume this will be helpful as well. Sure, it'll certainly be helpful to Emory grads. Um, For Emory students and Emory students in the future, uh, Emory has moved from loans to grants. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so uh, that's a way for our students to deal with this uh, in the future. Um, But for our graduates, absolutely, um, they're going to find relief in this. All right. um, So, Kevin, let's talk about some of the criticism. Um, And Senator Ben Sass, who's a Republican from Nebraska, I think um, expressed something that a lot of the critics are feeling right now. So I'm going to read his quote. Uh, He said, quote, forces this plan forces blue collar workers to subsidize white collar graduate students instead of demanding accountability from an underperforming higher education sector that pushes so many young Americans into massive debt. The administration's unilateral plan baptizes a broken system. And and a lot of Republicans, and, and for that matter, others out there who may consider themselves either Democrats or nonpartisans say, well, these people got into this debt issue on their own. Why is it going to be subsidized by uh, taxpayers who uh, don't have uh, uh, enough money to deal with this? You know, Bill, I think that people who see it that way have an extremely strong case and a legitimate point of view. I mean, uh, it's very human to to want something you can't afford and then try to figure out how you might get it. And uh, to then 
uh, say, well, you don't really have to pay for it after all, to some people is just plain old wrong. And then, you know, Susan, mm-hmm. used this example. I mean, what if you're a parent who scrimped and saved and worked two jobs so that your kids could get through school? Or, or what if you're someone who said, I, I, I just can't afford college. I'm going to have to go work and just never quite took the chance to get your degree. I mean, I think it's reasonable to see why people would feel that way. Of course, the flip side is young people entering college, especially if they've gotten into the school, their dreams are signing up for these loans and not necessarily aware of the commitment that they're making before they are in so deep. They, I think, as Senator Warnock points out, have no way out. Chris? I'll just add a couple of pieces to the puzzle um, from my own personal experience. One, I was also Pell eligible as an undergrad. I don't know whether that's going to apply to my loans or not. I'm going to find out in the coming days. Um, second thing is, I borrowed at 8% interest, and I have already paid an interest more than the maximum value of my loans. Mm-hmm. And this is something that we don't talk about in this, is that the legislation that originally allowed for student loans before we went to direct lending set it up in such a way that banks gave the loans and guaranteed the money and delivered the money, but it was free money for the banks because the federal government backed them up. So if you defaulted on the loan, the feds paid off your loans, and the banks were held no liability for making these loans. And so in the 80s and 90s when I was in school, they were out eagerly trying to get you to borrow maximums because the banks got fees off of them. So there's another actor in this puzzle of, of who's, got, who's benefited the most from loans. And in many cases, it is the banking industry that benefited greatly from student loans and charging us 8% interest when, when the, when the um, interest rates for mortgages were half that or less than half that. Um, Fred, no surprise, this uh, has made its way into the campaigns here in Georgia. Stacey Abrams commented on it during a visit to Southwest Georgia yesterday. Uh, she said she understands some critics were, quote, a little unhappy uh, with the debt relief plan. But then she went on, quote, and for every one of those who are complaining, where were you when Brian Kemp gave a tax cut to billionaires and millionaires? If they can have $10,000, so can our young people trying to get on their uh, feet. Fred? Sure. Uh, not to be the message because that echoes almost to the T. Um, what President Biden said yesterday mm-hmm. when he was asked a uh, similar question. Um, that said, I mean, I think um, we've heard from Susan and we've heard today from Kevin about these uh, folks who, uh, who did, in fact, uh, manage to, uh, to, pay, to pay their loans against all sorts of odds. Um, and, you know, I think it is important to be able to speak in a way that expresses some degree of empathy, um, even as um, we give relief uh, as a nation um, to people who are still working their way out of this. Um, and uh, I, I would also say that when we kind of think about why does this benefit all of us, the idea that there is a generation and perhaps generations um, that have become wrapped up uh, in this level of debt um, such that you know they can't buy their first house, they can't participate fully uh, in the economy uh, and in the American dream, um, this is something that actually doesn't just affect them; it affects all of us as a country. Uh, in order for us to uh, to move forward, um, and I think, and finally, the interest piece I think is an important piece of this too, right? Because I think there's kind of this 
sense. Well, people, uh, you know, they borrow $20,000, so they should pay $20,000. A lot of these folks have paid $20,000, um, and, and, and then some, right? Uh, and so, um, you know, it, it reminds me a little bit, uh, you know, of, you know, when years and years ago in Sunday school, I learned about usury. Um, yeah, and, but, but I think the interest piece of this uh, is an important part of the story. Kevin Fred, I'm going to ask you this question uh, since you're the lawyer on the show today. I know this isn't your area of specialty, but there's been talk about a lawsuit or a way to stop this from taking effect. I mean, what would what would be the 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 course of action for those who want to stop? It? Well, Fred, it is an executive order. It is not an act of Congress, which is going to open it up to uh, legal action, right? Sure, and there well there there may be. So there's a couple of uh, pieces to that puzzle. So one is who's going to sue um, and who has the standing to sue, right? So in order for someone to launch uh, a lawsuit in federal court, they have to demonstrate that they have been injured. Um, and the nature of this relief is that it's very clear who is benefiting, but it's much less clear who is injured. So that's, and that's not to say no one is injured, but that's, that's, uh, that's the big question mark um, that folks are scratching their heads about. Um, will it be states again, right? Will Chris Carr announce, you know, that uh, that Georgia and other states are going to sue? Um, but it, but it's it's unclear, uh, even if states do, what their injury is, um, because even when states do, they have to have an injury. Susan, um, oh, I'm sorry, finish up, Fred. Uh, and I was just that the, the actual legal challenge would be whether or not this was this fell within the scope of what Congress has authorized. So Congress, through the Heroes Act of 2003. Um, does allow for certain modifications and cancellations um, of policies related to student loans. There are, however, some limitations to that, um, but that's the authority that uh, that President Biden is relying on. Um, Susan, to put a period on this part of our conversation, I think uh, many people are going to say, yes, there are critics, and Republicans, of course, will continue to attack it. Um, but uh, this appears to be another step on Joe Biden's, on President Biden's hope to come back from this terrible, terrible approval rating and a period of time when he couldn't seem to get anything done. Uh, he has now accomplished what he said he was going to do, and it'll be interesting to see if this is another step in sort of what I'll call the rehabilitation of President Biden's first term. Well, I think it's going to affect a lot of people. And, you know, the people who have to own debt, if it's 15% of Georgia, that's 15% of people. He just got their attention, okay? And But you've also got people who, who are just absolutely opposed to this, and he got their attention too. So I'm not sure if it's going to be a wash. I, it looks like a wash, maybe. I don't know. But um, he certainly got their attention, and he did keep a promise he said he was going to make. So that reassures the people who may have had doubts. I, I do think... You know, there's still a lot to be done just with the basic expenses of college and education right now. And uh, this is this is a this is just a Band-Aid for that. All right. Um, let's move on and at least spend a few minutes on the um, aftermath of the uh, decision, which we heard yesterday um, for, uh, on the decision not to prosecute the two Atlanta police officers who were involved in the shooting death of Rayshard Brooks. Um, You know, I I thought, Kevin, it was interesting in many ways. I mean, certainly we heard from 
uh, representatives of the family that they were very upset about this, saddened by it. But they, the words that were used were, they're not angry. Um, we heard public officials who, like the mayor of Atlanta, who s- said something to the effect of, this decision is troubling, but we've got to accept it. It's been interesting to me uh, that the reaction has been so subdued, although we should say that uh, Chris Stewart and Justin Miller, the attorneys for the Brooks family, have said they're filing a civil lawsuit against these officers now. Well, of course, uh, there were a lot of concerns that if the decision came out this way, that there would be protests and potential violence. A lot of work behind the scenes to prepare, to guard against that, to try to make sure anyone uh, who, who might react to the decision wasn't surprised to the point that that was possible. So everyone seemed to be saying that. And I think that, it, of course, that was wise because I don't think anyone was interested in, in violence or, or uh, terrible reactions to this because of what happened in, in, the, in, the, you know, in the aftermath of kill, Rayshard Brooks's killing in the first place. Because that just makes it harder to resolve some of these issues. I mean, we have, you know, this tension between police officers and, uh, in particular, uh, African-Americans and other minority groups. And that is a societal problem. It's out in the open. It's going to remain out, out in the open. But any kind of bad reaction, violence, all that, just make everyone retreats to their corners. And then it becomes harder to acknowledge the things that perhaps can and should change. Fred? Sure. Um, you know, I think in some ways, uh, historically, um, we've seen less in the way of you know, property damage and, uh, and violent protests in the city of Atlanta, not just in recent years, but going all the way back to the 1960s. Um, and I think there is a part of the Atlanta identity um, not to not to be too Pollyannish about it, but where um, where the spirit of nonviolence uh, remains very much alive, and, and I also think that when people um, resort to things like property damage, et cetera, um, it often is a symptom uh, of a deeper mistrust and a deeper sense that there's no other way for people to participate. There's no other way for their voice to be heard, uh, and so when you see that, it's not usually just about one event. It's about many events that left people feeling like they don't have a voice, like they have a sense of, like they almost don't have a state. They live in a, uh, in a statelessness um, where this is the only way for them to be um, heard. Uh, and so, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm heartened that, that that's not the result and that in some ways it reflects some degree of trust some degree of trust. So I, I, I understand, you know, it's interesting because I wasn't even thinking necessarily that the reaction was subdued because we didn't have people out in the streets throwing uh, bottles at uh, police or whatever. But also, Susan, although there are certainly uh, people, including Stacey Abrams, candidate for governor, saying this is a disappointing uh, decision, we did not hear a lot of the kind of harsh rhetoric we might have expected to, a miscarriage of justice, two white officers who killed a, a black man um, when he was running away from them. I was surprised also by the tone of those who were uh, unhappy about this decision. Yeah, I, I was. I was. I, I agree with Fred in a lot of ways on this. Um, I think there is 
more discussion open now. You know, we've got some things here on the coast. Granted, we have the Arbery case, and a better Glen has worked very hard to enhance dialogue down there. But, you know, here in Savannah, we've had several police-involved shootings in the recent months, and one was last year when a passenger in a stop car was trying to run away, and another one was recently, and someone was trying to run away. It turns out a lot of these deadly shootings, one in three, I think, are caused when, or happen when people are trying to run away. People are talking more about reactions and how the officers are handling things. And in the video from last year's case here, the Minty case, the reactions I heard to a person was, isn't there something effective to be done the moment a person turns to run between then and when shots are fired? Is there some other training? Is there something else we can do? And a lot of the policemen have not been on the force for very long. And... Um, that's brought up a lot of issues here that people are talking about training and and experience and 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 what goes into that. So I think I think the conversations have moved along and they're looking for other ways to to tap the roots of of racism and and anything else that that comes into this. You know, Chris, um, on yesterday's show, we played a soundbite from Chris uh, Stewart, one of the attorneys for the Brooks family. Um, and he he made it clear how complicated this was and it, the incident was, saying when Rayshard Brooks fought against these police officers, really beat them, um, he absolutely um, was at risk for uh, a being sh- a shot uh, I- if necessary. And, and he thought that would have been an understandable reaction from the police officers. He, the, the turning point for him was even though uh, Brooks stole a taser and fired it. He was t- he had his back turned and was shot behind. So Chris Stewart himself made clear how complicated this whole encounter really was. Well, I, I would I, I would echo Susan and some of the things that she said in pointing out <clears throat> the issues of trying to figure out other ways to deal with somebody running away, the is- issues of having relatively inexperienced police forces on the streets, but. This is not just a white against black issue. We also have uh, officers of color who are shooting um, people of color and others, but mostly people of color. And the problem to me is that the police live in a certain sense of fear because there's so many guns out there. And so the idea is I've got to shoot because my life's on the line. And in many ways, their lives are on the line. And we live in this complicated world, and certainly I, I, I would not suggest to you that they, they are not white police officers shooting um, people of color. But there's a lot of other variables that get added into that mix. And so while we need to deal with systemic racism, we truly do, and we have to be able to understand that my successor, the person that I mentor for the future, may not look like me, a white guy, um, they may not look like me, and I need to be open to embracing and eagerly um, lifting up people that are different than me. There's also a problem with just playing too many guns out there. <laughs> All right, um, let's do this. Let's get to our first break of the show. Uh, when we come back, we have a lot more to talk about on Political Rewind, including the question of why Herschel Walker has made a dog an issue in the Senate race. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. 
Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Susan Catron of The Current, Chris Grant, political science professor and chairman of the political science department at Mercer University, Kevin Riley, editor of the AJC, and Fred Smith, who we have on the show to talk about everything that has to do with politics, but especially look forward to hearing from him because when he talks about the law, because he's a professional, a professor of uh, constitutional law are all with us uh, today. Uh, Kevin, let's talk a little bit about the Senate race, I, I, starting with the fact that Mitch McConnell has now uh, really weighed in in a pretty strong way about the two Republican races at the top of the ticket in Georgia. Number one, he's holding an event on Capitol Hill in, I think, next month in September for Brian Kemp. There are, I think, 15 or 16 Republican senators who are listed as hosts, along with McConnell, of the event. It's a strong statement for McConnell to make about a candidate for governor. Second, um, McConnell a couple weeks ago caught a lot of people by surprise when he acknowledged that in a number of states, Republicans had nominated uh, less than ideal candidates for the United States Senate, and he was concerned that they were people who couldn't win those races. Hey, maybe J.D. Vance, Mehmet Oz were two of the people who could have been on his mind. We don't know. But he did just this week say... Herschel Walker's not one of them. Herschel Walker's a strong candidate. I support him uh, moving forward. So let's talk about McConnell weighing in on the Senate races, on the Senate and the governor's race here. Yeah, I mean, uh, I have connections to all three of these. As you know, I'm a native Ohioan, so I've been watching mm-hmm. that, that uh, race closely. I live here in Georgia, and I'll bet you I'm the only guest to ever be on your show and the uh, Dr. Oz show, Bill, and we'll have to talk about that sometime. <laughs> but it's true. I, I have appeared on the Dr. Oz show. <laughs> Um, but you couldn't help but think that McConnell was talking about uh, Herschel Walker when he made that statement. I think every Georgian who heard that, uh, you know, no matter what side of the political uh, argument you're on, uh, you had to feel like, yeah, he must mean Herschel because uh, Herschel's numerous gaffes and oddball statements. Um, but but – in the end, they're still supporting Herschel. They're not going to not support him. I think the governor thing is more significant. I still believe there's a great chance that that Kemp emerges as one of the leading Republicans in the country if he wins this if he wins this race against Stacey Abrams. He's he's somehow found a way to manage the Trump issue, and he will have defeated the person that Dem- or the Republicans talk about all the time. But we'll have to see what happens, Chris. Yeah, I, I, I just would say Mitch McConnell, Kevin Riley, and I seem to be in a group of Brian Kemp as presidential timber. Um, I see it. I'm not sure anybody else sees it other than Kevin and Mitch McConnell and I. But um, I think that's part of what's going on. I think that Kemp presents an interesting candidacy that kind of threads the needle between the um, never-Trumpers and the Trumpers in a way that few other candidates can do, and they he play balancing act. Which also gets into another topic, which is why he's not averse to um, courting Donald Trump at this point, even though Donald Trump has made it very clear that Brian Kemp is um, not his choice of, of candidate um, in general. Uh, I would just add with Herschel Walker, um, 
I think Herschel Walker looks like he could win now. I don't think he looked like he was going to win in the summer. I think he's made a late surge, and it's looking more and more like he's got a good fighting chance of winning. Um, and especially as Brian Kemp seems to be solidifying, um, Herschel Walker's chances of winning become better. Um, I'm still betting for a mixed bag of results in Georgia, but um, I, I think that, that that's part of Mitch McConnell's calculus is that Herschel Walker now has a chance of winning, and he doesn't want to distance himself from it. Susan. You know, Chris, that's that's an interesting that's an interesting observation. I I'm not I'm not sure. There's it's a long time till November. Yeah. Something going on, but I I do think that if Herschel Walker ties himself to Kemp, uh, it's it's probably good for him. I mean, that's probably a good way to go. But that I agree that the thing in Washington is a big deal. Uh, it's I think McConnell's way of saying uh, you know kind of poking. You know, the former president, as well as saying, you know, here's a candidate I can support. Uh, I, I do think that's got some gravity to it. Fred? And I think on Walker, it is the case that if you compare his polling, A, to where it was this summer, yes, and B, to where um, the Republican candidate is in Arizona and certainly where, the, uh, where Dr. Oz is in Pennsylvania, um, that Walker does show some signs of, of life. Um at the same time, um, he continues to make gaps. But you know, but but if you know, I suppose maybe the calculus is uh, if Kemp is strong enough, uh, given that Georgia doesn't have a a deep history in recent years of, uh, of of a lot of ticket splitting. We saw a little bit of it two years ago, but but uh, Georgia voters tend to be what I think political scientists call uh, inelastic. Um, so they, they tend to vote for one party or the other. They don't tend to engage in a lot of ticket splitting. So maybe the mm-hmm. thinking is that if uh, if Kemp is strong enough uh, in a victory, not to assume that that will happen, but if he, if he were to be, um, that maybe he can bring uh, Walker along for the ride. Uh, by the way, I have to say, Kevin Riley and Chris Grant, if I were the Kemp campaign people right now, say Cody Hall, their communication guy, and I were listening to this show, and, and any of them – heard you talk about Kemp as a potential presidential candidate, they'd be tearing their hair out right now. The last thing in the world you need when you're running for re-election is to be talked up as a candidate in two years for well, president. I, I, Chris took it a little farther than I did. Uh, I, I'm not saying, hey, he's a presidential candidate. I just think it's a, it's kind of an interesting situation, the position he could find himself in. Uh, and uh we haven't. And of course, they don't want to talk about that. Well, of course, he's got a tough governor's race, um, as we know. So um, I personally would love to defer conversations about the next steps beyond that. But I understand your point is, I, and I, is well taken. My my caveat was if he wins. And I, I yeah. think that yeah. that is that remains the question. It's a tough yeah. race without question. All right. yes, yes, I agree, too. Okay. So so I mentioned in, in uh, the end of the first segment that I want to talk about why Herschel Walker was talking about a dog in one of his commercials. And I really want to correct myself. This is not just a dog. This is Alvin the Beagle. <laughs> Alvin mm-hmm. the Beagle became a star during Herschel, uh, during uh, Raphael Warnock's first run, his run uh, for the Senate in that uh, uh, special election to fill Johnny Isaacson's seat. And of course, everybody remembers that it was a very funny, warm, cozy spot that showed Raphael Warnock walking Alvin. The Beagle. Uh, clearly, if a man has that kind of relationship with a dog, he's good 
for the state of Georgia. It was an effective spot. Well, the uh, I think in a very clever way, uh, 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 Fred Smith, the Walker campaign has now come out with a commercial pointing out that Alvin the Beagle isn't even Raphael Warnock's dog. Not that he ever said it was. And essentially uh, saying that um, Alvin has disappeared and that if Raphael Warnock will lie about having a dog, what won't he lie about? And, of course, what's interesting about that is so much of Raphael Warnock's advertising against Herschel Walker is about all the lies he's told over the years leading up to his Senate run. Uh, your thought about all of this, Fred? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, of course, Reverend Warnock never said that that was his dog. Yeah. Uh, right? If you remember the context, right, uh, it was a, a comical ad where he said, that, you know, they're going to say everything under the sun about me. They're going to even maybe say that I don't like dogs. I, I love dogs. Right? <laughs> Um, and, and so uh, it, it, it's it's amazing to me. If they I, I, that said, I mean, I think it is perhaps a good move by the Walker camp because we're not talking about uh, America's good air going over to China's bad air. We're not talking about whether Georgia has enough trees, <laughs> um, and, and, and we're, we're and we're not talking about some of the more serious um, tone ads. Um, against uh, Walker recently, including the one um, where uh, his um, ex-wife describes him pointing a gun at her, right? And so this kind of, this, the, um, this is a way to, to kind of move attention from that and talk about something else. Um, and I think there's a way in which people almost might, um, it's, it's so uncomfortable to talk about some of those other things, especially that last point um, that, you know, it's giving, it's, maybe the Walker campus trying to give people um, some relief and distraction. Susan? Well, I want to, uh, one thing I do want to say is I, I remember Gary Black also called out Warnock on not owning the dog. He, he did it first. You know. But uh, all that said, I think, I think they've used this pretty well. They took the most popular thing from Warnock's campaign and pulled it into their own campaign. And that was really smart. Um, the tone of the commercial, I don't, I'm, I didn't feel like it was all that effective. It was just, it just got your attention. So I guess that is effective, but you know, that song you're used to seeing, you know, poor abused animals behind it on, on TV. So it kind of leaves you with a kind of a, a weird spot when it's over. Um, so I, I don't know, I, over time it's, it's effective to get your attention, but after that, I don't know how long it really lasts. Uh, Chris, I, let, well, I'm, let me, let me add a layer to this. Uh, because I think there's another element that I'd love to get your take on, and, and I don't want to be overreacting to this. Um, but Herschel Walker, in addition to Alvin the Beagle, that spot, which, which you know, as everybody has said, seems to have some uh, of value for the Walker campaign. Walker took a shot, essentially, at Ebenezer Baptist Church, where, of course, Raphael Warnock is the pastor. And he made the point about all the homeless people that hang around the church. There's a homeless shelter across the street from the church. So there was that. Patricia Murphy did a column where she went up to North Georgia, a women, women for Walker event, where evangelical Christians talked about Herschel Walker essentially being chosen by God, being more godly than Raphael Warnock, um, who's a pastor of an, one of the most important churches in America. And I can't help but wonder, are Republicans treading on somewhat dangerous territory if they start in any way to suggest that Warnock is not 
as as much a person of God as Herschel Walker, and if they take shots at that iconic church. Wow, there's so much that you've just given me, and um, also I just wanted to go back and say a couple of things about it. Georgia's had some really interesting political ads left in it. Singing Grandmas in 1992, King Rat, um, the Kemp ads from last election. We really have done some clever ads which have propelled candidates forward. This is a clever ad, and it hits at the soft underbelly of Senator Warnock, which is in two years ago, he was the nice guy. And I think he attracted voters because they didn't like the tone that was going on in the race and the attacks that had been going so strong, so vehemently. And his media, his presentation to the public was, he's a nice guy. And Walker is trying to take a dig at his underbelly, which is he's been much more aggressive in this race. And he's proven to be a very shrewd and capable politician, which is arguably what you're supposed to be for your United States Senator. Um, so I think that that's part of the strategic, uh, the strategic um, benefit to this. What I would add about your your point, Bill, is that I grew up in evangelical Christianity. I was there during the Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan revolution mm. between 1976 and 1980. I was a, I was a teen in church four times a week during those days, and I think that many folks that are in that movement—I'm no longer a part of that movement—but many folks that are in that movement look at the establishment and the established religion as not being Christian, as not being religious. And so what Walker is doing is rallying that base. Now, where he may lose support, where he desperately is going to have to have support, is in suburban areas that um, may not see things quite the way evangelical Christians do. Fred, i got to get to a break, but before I do, I want to get your take on this. Am I overreacting on this uh, Christianity uh, issue? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it layers a little bit on to um, you know, the pro-life, pro-choice debate as well, right? I mean, if you watch the Republican Senate debate, um, they went after Warnock hard on that, and they mm-hmm. even call in his Christianity into question. Um, that said, I mean, in terms of the, the voters who are up for grabs here, which are the voters in the northern verbs, um, you know, I, I, I don't think that's an effective attack. Okay. Um, I do have to get to our final break. I'm way late for it, but let's do this, and we'll be back with more in just a moment. Kevin Riley, there's um, been a lot of news coverage of the fact that Sidney Powell, uh, that (laughs) I don't know what adjective I should use to describe her, but that lawyer who represented uh, Donald Trump for a while in the election fraud uh, cases that they were pursuing, was down with her team in Coffee County. We know this now. uh, Getting the county election officials to literally crack open the voting machines and extract all of this confidential material about voters, we've talked about that on the show. But what's added to uh, that conversation now is your Mark Nisi, who's just a terrific election reporter, uh, points out that the Atlanta firm Southern, Sullivan Strickler was hired to go in there and do this work. And there are questions about a private company getting into bed Um, taking these people on as a client and whether or not there was anything inappropriate 
or are they in any way liable for having gotten involved in all of this? Yeah, I think this is going to be a fairly complicated mess as, as uh, uh, law enforcement and other digs into, dig, officials dig into it. And also, don't forget, the latest development is that this data was literally put out in a place where those interested in looking at it could download it. Yes. So that this issue of having lost control of this election data is now emerging as the latest twist in the story. But in the end, you have a private company that's saying, well, we were hired to do this. We were hired by lawyers to do it. We followed our clients' requests is really uh, their explanation. And you wonder if that'll hold up. All right. I I wanted to just get that on the record because it's something we'll talk about more. But while we have Susan Catron here, we really need to talk about at least one other issue that really relates to her uh, part of the state. Um, Susan, uh, we now know that um, th- there's been a longstanding uh, dispute at the Okefenokee Swamp about an Alabama company that wants to come in and mine right on the edge of the swamp. I think it's heavy metal mining. Uh, We thought the feds were going to be the ones who decided whether this should happen or not. There are a lot of people very upset about the environmental consequences. But now uh, the feds have turned it back over to the state division of environment of of, of the environment. And there's a lot of concern that the state's going to give their blessing to this project. Yeah. Okefenokee Wildlife National Refuge is, is a treasure for all of us, for the nation, for everything. It's got 600 plant species. It's got rare animals go for tortoises, which I just like to say go for tortoises. But um, yeah, it's it's an important area for Native Americans as well. And that was the gist of why it went back to the federal government, to the Army Corps of Engineers. They said, we need to consult. Well, at that point, um, Twin Pines Mining, who's going in there to mine sand for titanium dioxide, said, no, no, you can't do that. Um, and they sued them. So apparently last Friday or last week, they settled and the Army Corps backed up and said, no, we'll put it back in state hands. Now, you know, the it, it's back in the, um, it, for permitting. And that process was going on, if you remember, during the legislature last year, and they made a few moves to preserve it, but that died. Uh, we even had the governor proclaim it um, Okefenokee Swamp Day at one point to try and save it. Ron Stevens, who's the representative out of Savannah, was on a panel yesterday at the Georgia Environmental Conference. He says he's going to put it back into the legislature and try to get it going again to stop that. But in the meantime, you've got the permitting process going on. It could be a race to see if it's permitted because they're not going to, he also said they wouldn't interrupt any permits that been given. So, you know, it, will the permitting process be ended and mining started before the legislature steps in or will they step in after? Um, but the Okefenokee mining project is at this point hinging on something from state permitting. It's um, gone back and forth so many times. It's just like whiplash. Chris, we should point out that Senator Ossoff has been very involved in trying to yeah. and, and been supporting the Army Corps of Engineers as saying we can't allow uh, this to happen. But Susan's right. I, I, for those of us who've been to the Okefenokee Swamp, and in my case, it's any number of times, it is one of the most glorious places, not just in Georgia, but on, on the planet. It's a remarkable place. It, it is what I think of when I think of Georgia in many ways. Um, and particularly when I'm not thinking about the city of Atlanta, it is kind of Georgia's at its best. I think one of the interesting things is how much more interested in the environment Georgians are now than they were 20 years ago. 20 years ago, anything, everything was geared toward economic development. You did not have a strong environmental 
um, sentiment among, amongst Georgians, and that has really grown. And it shows up in, in Stacey mm-hmm. Abrams' environmental plan. It shows up in more and more of the discussions. Um, and that's probably a reflection of the voters who um, are making up more and more part of the electorate, which are well-educated Atlanta people from all different backgrounds um, who are more interested in contemporary issues that um, make them more like their, their counterparts in other parts of the country as opposed to the Old South. Fred, if EPD, the Environmental Protection Division, does grant the uh, permission for the company to begin mining, you can imagine there's going to be immediate lawsuits uh, filed and injunctions that will try to stop it until it works its way through court, yes? Sure, and the legal issues are going to depend, I think, on who acts first. The the the, uh, agency charged with issuing the permits um, or the state legislature uh, at Susan Noted. I do want to say that when it comes to environmental issues in the state of Georgia, though, um, that I think our history there goes goes further um, than than recently, right? So if we think about the preservation of the Georgia coast, mm-hmm. um, you know, we have some of the strongest uh, protections uh, in uh, in the nation, uh, and I think those those were implemented many decades ago. I don't want to say the exact number because I'll get it wrong, but uh, but I know they've been there for a very long time. Uh, and so I think sometimes when you take an environmental issue and you don't just call it, and it's not just the environment at a very kind of broad level, but instead um, it's about water, it's about the preservation of one's uh, environment uh, and their uh, their ability to, to live, um, you know, it, it's an issue that's accessible to all voters. Um, we should, uh, Natalie Mendenhall, it would be great. Um, the Current has a really good story on, on this on their website. If we could appoint our people, uh, uh, listeners, uh, uh, to that on our social media, that'd be uh, terrific. Susan, this is a story you're going to be following very closely. It really, it's, it's down your way. It is. And people really do care about it. That's fact. Chris, did you want to weigh in? I want to weigh in because I agree with Fred and I spoke out of turn. It's not just been the last 20 years. This does go back farther. The Carter administration was very, mm-hmm. when Carter was governor, was very involved in environmental protection. After Carter, there seemed to be a shift, but the the next environmentalist that the state had was Newt Gingrich. And if you remember back to early Newt Gingrich, he was running on an environmental agenda um, from the other side. So there have been environmental movements in the state earlier. All right. Um, Chris Grant. Chris Grant, gets, <laughs> Chris Grant gets the last word on today's Political Rewind because we are now completely out of time. So, Chris Grant, Mercer University, thank you so much for being uh, back with us uh, today. Fred Smith, always a pleasure. Thank you for your contributions. And Susan Catron, um, it's great. You know, um, Margaret Coker from The Current is on the show, as our panelists, as our listeners know quite often. And it's very nice to bring you into the mix as well. So thank you for uh, being here, too, uh, Susan. We're out of time. Oh, Kevin Riley, you know I'm glad you were here. You um, don't have to say so. I know it. I feel it. <laughs> we're out of time. We're going to be back with a brand new uh, show, of course, tomorrow. My thanks to Victoria Evans-Cash, to Natalie Mendenhall, to Jake Cook, to Chase McGee for all the work they do behind the scenes to make this show better than I could ever possibly make it if I had to do it all by myself. So that's it for us today. We'll be back again with a brand new show tomorrow. We're going to talk a little bit about Stacey Abrams' rollout of her environmental uh, plan and many other subjects on Political Rewind. Until tomorrow, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy. See you tomorrow, everybody.